0: Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra Albuterol Budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. you. Visit AirSupraConnect.com to connect with a provider.
1: MANHUNT HAS INTENSIFIED
0: FOR TWO CONVICTED George's KILLERS IN THIS AREA JUST THREE MILES SOUTHEAST OF THE CLINTON CORRECTIONAL
1: FACILITY. THEY'RE DANGEROUS, THEY'RE DANGEROUS WHEREVER THEY ARE IN THE COUNTRY. THEY COULD BE LITERALLY ANYWHERE.
0: A SUSPECTED ACCOMPLICE IN THE NEW YORK PRISON BREAK IS NOW UNDER ARREST, JOYCE MITCHELL. JOYCE, could YOU HELP ME TURN ESCAPE? YEAH, YOU'VE READ THAT I'M THE MONSTER THAT'S INVOLVED IN ALL THIS. AN IMPOSSIBLE ESCAPE from an impenetrable fortress. I never thought in a million years that any inmate would be able to get out of there. There's only three ways out. Either you grow old and die in there, you commit suicide, or you escape.
1: You're not getting out of there without at least help from somebody. But who helped these two
0: killers break free? She's got Mark written all over her. Recruiting Joyce Mitchell was a very, very calculated move. David Sweat is a cold, calculating sociopath who only cares about himself. Richard Matt was a master manipulator.
1: Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Welcome to part one of Escape from Dannemora. On June sixth, twenty 2015, two convicted murderers broke out at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York, triggering the most extensive manhunt in that state's history and capturing the national news cycle with what happened to be a sex scandal linking both inmates to a female prison employee who aided them. On a June day in 2015, double murderer Richard Matt and cop killer David Sweat slipped out of their cells through openings they had created in the wall of their cells, followed a network of tunnels and pipes under the 30-foot prison wall, and climbed out of a manhole at midnight to freedom, triggering the largest manhunt in New York State's history. The Clinton Correctional Facility, located in the small upstate New York Adirondack town of Danamora, is a maximum security prison which has housed the likes of the Mafia crime boss Charles Lucky Luciano, the Preppy murderer Robert Chambers, David Berkowitz, otherwise known as Son of Sam, who was evaluated there, and rapper Tupac Shakur, among others. David Sweat and Richard Matt convicted murderers were both sent to the prison's tailor shops upon entering the Clinton Correctional Facility. In New York prisons, all inmates get some sort of compensation regardless of whether they work, go to school, or do nothing. It's not much, but they do get paid to go to prison. The pay is enough to buy things within the commissary or through mail order companies outside the walls. They are allowed to receive packages from friends and family as well. The commissaries are tax-free, and things are cheaper there than they are outside. All medical and dental needs are covered, and recreational facilities, including basketball courts, soccer fields, baseball diamonds, weightlifting equipment, handball courts, full TV packages, and full libraries, including legal resources, are also available. Honor block housing is also provided, and that's where good inmates are housed. Past records are forgotten. If you're good for a period of time after entering, regardless of your crime, you get assigned to the honor block, which is where Richard Matt and David Sweat were housed. Honor block inmates get extra time out of the cell and liberal time allowed for telephone and shower privileges. A common joke among correction staff is that the walls are only there to keep the public out. The real story here, I believe, is threefold, consisting of the manhunt the terror that New York residents had to endure for three weeks, knowing that there were two violent killers on the loose, and the budget restraints, cutbacks, and downsizing which had been imposed upon the New York prison system for years, and which helped to make the escape possible in the first place. Law enforcement, from the policeman on the street, to the county sheriff's office, to the prisons, requires strong funding. It really should be looked at as a defense budget, because in effect, you're defending the honest citizen's right to live peacefully apart from those who want to commit crimes. The truth is that many of the men and women in this country performing the most heroic duty here in the states day and night are vastly underpaid and overworked law enforcement people whose budgets in some states have been cut back for years. When defunding takes place in law enforcement, things happen. In prisons, gaps appear in the watchfulness. Morale takes a dive. Employees can get friendly with inmates. Resources are lacking. Good workers start seeking early retirement. Supervisors are given mandates to turn in reports, telling of how costs can be cut. Instead of using the word layoffs, the word right-sizing is attached to job cuts. Job incentives start disappearing. Prisons start disappearing, as criminal inmates are set free by the hundreds, even thousands. The closing of prisons is hailed as a success, leaving the public to assume that less crimes are being committed. In truth, the opposite is true. As the laws are being watered down, punishments are reduced, releases and paroles are coming quicker, bail is being paid by mysterious sources, and more criminals are hitting the streets than ever before. In the prisons, jail terms become shorter, cell searches become fewer and fewer, and escape becomes inevitable the author of Danamora, Charles A. Gardner, with 25 years of experience in New York correctional facilities, was to write, What happened in the Clinton prison was the predictable result of 20-plus years of cost-cutting pressure from the state. Unmentioned when it came time to parcel out the blame was one essential fact. By skimping on resources for so many years, the state had made full compliance with its own directives impossible. At the vertical top of New York State's government, powerful men behind desks found scapegoats among the prison staff. When somebody had to take the fall for conditions inside the prison, those at the top paid no penalty, even though their own decision had made those conditions inevitable. We'll return with the true story behind the 2015 escape from the Clinton Correctional Facility at Danamora right after these sponsor messages. Hi everyone, the holiday season is upon us and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night.
0: See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bpcom America.
1: And now, back to our story. Richard Matt was born and raised in Tonawanda, New York, a suburb of Buffalo, and began receiving foster care along with his brother Robert early in life. A career criminal, Richard served recurrent prison terms in the 1980s and 90s for various crimes including burglary, rape, theft, an assault. Having first escaped from a group home in his early teens, Matt had a history of escaping from correctional facilities. On December 3, 1997, Matt and an accomplice named Lee Bates kidnapped William Rickerson, Matt's former boss, from his home in North Tonawanda in an attempt to rob him. Matt demanded to know the location of a large sum of money he believed Rickerson possessed. He and Bates drove to Ohio and back for more than 24 hours with Rickerson in the trunk of the car, periodically stopping to open the trunk to beat and torture their victim. Matt eventually killed Rickerson by breaking his neck. That was just before dismembering his body and throwing the parts in a river and escaping to Mexico. Matt did get $80 and some credit cards from Rickerson's wallet after he cut him to pieces, so the whole effort wasn't wasted as far as Matt was concerned. On February twentieth, 1998, while well, in the border city of Matamoros, Tamaulipas, Matt murdered a second man, Charles Arnold Peralt, an American engineer working in a local factory. Matt tried to rob Peralt and then stabbed him to death at a bar as he was using the restroom. Matt was caught for that one, soon arrested, and given a 23-year sentence for murder in a Mexican court. In 2007, he was extradited back to the U.S. to face trial for Rickerson's murder, where Bates testified against him, and Matt received a 25-years-to-life sentence for second-degree murder with no chance of parole until 2032. Matt was enjoying the extra freedoms that the honor block at Clinton gave him, and in many ways that extra freedom enabled his escape. He especially enjoyed the friendship of fellow cellmate David Sweat. David Sweat was raised in the Binghamton metropolitan area by his single mother, Pamela Sweat, along with his two sisters. Sweat had a troubled childhood characterized by violent tendencies. After being sent to Florida to be raised by an uncle, he stole and wrecked his aunt's car and soon went into foster care. By the time they were in their late teens, Sweat and his cousin Jeffrey A. Nabinger Jr. were sporadically homeless. The two held short-lived jobs, and became involved in the trade of marijuana. Sweat was known for elaborately planning burglaries he intended to commit with Nabinger, and they were arrested several times in the late 1990s and were sent to prison. In the early morning hours of July 4, 2002, Sweat, Nabinger, and a third accomplice, Sean Duvall, burglarized a fireworks and gun store in Great Bend, Pennsylvania, to steal firearms. Upon returning to New York, they were spotted by Kevin Tarzia a Broome County Sheriff's deputy, while transferring the stolen firearms in a parking lot in Kirkwood from one vehicle to another. The 22-year-old Sweat, pistol in one hand, assault rifle in another, opened fire on Tarja, hitting him multiple times before running over him with his souped-up Honda Accord. Seeing that Officer Tarja was still alive after being run over, Dabinger took the officer's 40 caliber Glock and shot Tarja two more times in the face. The three men were arrested a few days later. During the trial, Sweat and Neiberger both pled guilty to first-degree murder and received life without parole to avoid capital punishment. Deval, who cooperated with authorities, was sentenced to five years in prison plus five years of supervised release. Unlike Matt, Sweat had no prior history of escaping from prison. Today, there is no more capital punishment in New York. It was outlawed in 2004 by an appeals court. Regardless of the crime, New Yorkers in charge don't believe the death penalty should be allowed. Governor Pataki tried to reverse that in 1995, but it was overturned. Actually, the last person to be executed for a crime in New York was Eddie Lee Mays on August 15, 1963, over 50 years ago. Regardless of the heinousness of the crime in terms of numbers of persons killed or the methods used, no one gets the injection or the chair or even a slap on the wrist, literally, in New York. If Sweat had waited two years, he wouldn't have had to plead guilty to first-degree murder to avoid capital punishment. He met Richard Matt in the prison tailor shop at Clinton, and the two became bro-mates, enjoying their honor block privileges. On June 6, 2015, Matt and Sweat were found to be unaccounted for during the 5.30 a.m. morning count, having been last seen at the 10.30 p.m. count the previous night. It was reported that an external breach was found on a street approximately 500 feet outside the prison wall. The inmates had tunneled out of the facility. Matt and Sweat had been housed in Honor Block, which we've already said is a privileged housing unit which allowed them access to cooking stations, televisions, wall-mounted telephones, showers, and card tables in the cell house at specified intervals during the day. According to news reports, the escapees used tools from contractors to cut their escape tunnel during the nights, and returned them to their toolboxes afterwards. The escape was elaborate and has been compared to the escape made in the novella and film by Stephen King called The Shawshank Redemption. Authorities found that the two, Richard Matt and David Sweat, had planned to be picked up by a prison employee, Joyce Mitchell. However, according to a relative, Mitchell developed chest pains and was hospitalized. A second employee, prison guard Gene Palmer, was also charged with aiding the escape. Palmer admitted to investigators that he smuggled tools into the prison and did other favors for Richard Matt in exchange for paintings. Apparently Richard Matt was quite a painter, and his paintings were popular, popular enough to be objects he could bargain with. At Clinton, Palmer was assigned as an escort officer, meaning he would walk with inmates moving from one part of the prison to another. In this way he could gather information on them and gain their trust. For a while, he became a valuable source of intel for the prison. But over the years, Palmer got complacent about his job, and the line between corrections officer and inmate got very blurry for him. He stopped frisking inmates. He forgot to make his rats walk through metal detectors. He turned his head once too often. His tips to prison authorities soon became regarded as the disinformation highway. In addition to Palmer, another prison insider... Who Matt and Sweat managed to compromise, was Joyce Mitchell. She was an industrial training supervisor, 51 years old, with a full figure. Her husband Lyle also worked in one of the prison tailor shops as a supervisor. For inmates, working in the tailor shops was a plum job. Not only was the income good, as prison income went, but the tailor shops are a moneymaker for the state, which nets about $10 million each year from its prison tailors. Joyce Mitzel was working in the same long building as her husband, but in a different shop. Although she had been trained on ways prisoners would try to get close and manipulate them and coerce them with favors, she still developed a soft spot somehow for killer's mat and sweat. And they took that to the bank. She became involved neck-deep in their plan to escape. Somehow she went a little or a lot too far with herself and by smuggling little things into them, like food... And little hacksaw blades, and exposed herself to blackmail, and then they had her at their will. Other employees were reporting that she was getting much too friendly with those two inmates, but somehow the reports were falling on deaf ears. As we just said, Richard Matt was a painter, and his paintings were good enough to trade for contraband. He painted a picture of Joyce Mitchell's son, and she picked up a pair of night glasses for him on eBay. Another painting earned Matt a pair of exercise gloves. These would turn out to be very useful for handling cutting tools. The night glasses would help to guide the two men through the dark tunnels in the bowels of the prison during their escape. Mitchell bought the gloves, and Palmer delivered them. Lyle Mitchell was aware that this stuff was going on, and he tried to warn his wife, he said later, but he never reported any of her actions to an official. Of course, snitching would have gotten him killed, so there was that to consider. Meanwhile, Joyce Mitchell's paramour, Sweat, had been removed from her tailor shop, but Richard Matt quickly took up the slack, promising her that he and Sweat were fond of her and that she should help them. And so she did, smuggling in drill bits to aid in their escape. Somehow the metal detector they passed through wasn't working that time. But the bits didn't work, so she was then asked to get L-shaped, Allen-style bits, and those did the job. Plans changed. The movie Shawshank Redemption provided some new ideas, and a day for the breakout was planned. Matt and Sweat now focused on the tunnels beneath the prison, confident that the catwalk that ran behind the wall to their cells led to tunnels and pipes, and eventually a way out, through a steam pipe. The catwalk area was known to inmates because sometimes inmates would accompany electricians on their journeys along these catwalks on repair jobs. The cell's rear walls were made of three-sixteenths-inch-thick steel plates, which they cut through using hacksaw blades provided by Mitchell. By now the two men each had their own cell, and the two cells were located next to each other. Since their cells faced the recreation area, the two men used their saws during noisy recreation hours. One day a nearby inmate returned early from recreation and asked them what the hell they were doing, to which Matt replied, he was cutting a piece of canvas for a painting. They were both allegedly spending their free time painting, so the nearby inmate was not suspicious, or so it seemed, to Matt and Sweat. Their other neighbor knew exactly what they were doing, but kept his mouth shut. And so they worked in Sweat cell as well as Matt's. In 30 days, both cell walls behind the head of the beds had been breached. They covered over the holes with tape and painted the tape using paint designated for cell wall touch-up. The beds blocked a direct line of sight, A careful search, and there were over 100 cell searches in the time before the escape, would have found it. But, as was said before, the guards were not looking sharply. Sweat had created a mannequin using spare pieces of clothing, although it didn't show anything resembling skin. According to procedure, passing guards were required to see skin before they considered the inmate present. It looked as though the guards had fallen down on this one as well, but we'll cover that a little more deeply as we go forward. Leaving his cell to explore the maze of tunnels for one hundred consecutive nights, the convicts mapped it out until they had found the pipe that led to the outside a steam pipe by April of twenty fifteen Both men had accumulated all the food and supplies needed for a long run through the wilderness and Joyce Mitchell had sworn to load her jeep with tents, sleeping bags, fishing poles, a hatchet, a rifle, a shotgun, ammunition, and more hacksaw blades. Most of this gear belonging to Joyce's husband. She also smuggled a Rand McNally map into prison for the boys to study. As things got down to the wire, Joyce and Matt were talking about her husband as being the glitch, in other words, the one thing that might stand in the way of their plan. She was overheard telling Matt that her husband was worth more dead than alive, his insurance policy paying $500,000. They decided to kill Lyle near their house in Dickinson and to make it look like an accident. Or maybe they would murder him within the prison walls. At any rate, she was planning on running away with them both and using her jeep in the process. Later, when the truth came out, police interrogators brought up a substantial question, that being, how was she going to collect the insurance money when she was running away with the escaped criminals? Another 15 days of looking for, finding, and hacksawing into the final pipe to freedom took place, and finally, on June fifth, 2015, at midnight, they lifted up a manhole cover on Barker and Balk Streets, exactly one block from the prison's south wall. This was a familiar sight, as was clearly visible from the windows of Taylor Shop No. three. As was clearly visible from the windows of Taylor Shop Number One. Neither of the two towers in view of this intersection were manned on midnight shifts, thanks to those budget cuts ordered by corrections officers in Albany. The two men closed the cover and recreated down the ladder and back through the pipes and the back catwalk, to their cells, with high hopes for escape the next day. Upon returning to his cell, Sweat wrote his last of many love notes to Joyce Mitchell, telling her that tonight's the night, and included her instructions, which included giving her husband a poison pill. She was to pack all the gear they needed into her jeep and drive to Denhamora, arriving at the intersection of Barker and Balk at midnight, then wait with the engine running. He told her to have the headlights off and be standing outside a car talking on her cell phone to avoid drawing attention to herself. During the following day, Matt delivered Sweat's note to Joyce, attempting some conversation, but the new supervisor, who was now suspicious of Joyce, broke it up. At 9.45 p.m., Matt and Sweat packed their bags. Those bags consisting of a fabric guitar case for Sweat and a backpack for Matt, mostly packed with trail snags. At 11 p.m., a search was made by flashlight showing both men in their beds. After the search, they both removed the tape from the holes and slipped out. They arrived at the manhole at 11.45 p.m. ahead of schedule, and they waited 15 long minutes for Joyce's jeep. The two convicts were free. At the end of her workday, Joyce and her husband Lyle left the prison and drove back toward their home in Dickinson Center, stopping at the King's Walk restaurant for dinner on Route 11. Directly across from that restaurant is a New York State police substation. All it would have taken was a drive across the street to inform the police that an escape would be taking place in just a few hours. But she neither did anything or said anything. This was apparently eating her up inside, and by the time they got home, she was having a panic attack, which included chest pains and a flushed face. She laid down for a nap, and when she woke up at 9 p.m., the pain in her chest still hadn't gone away. So Lyle drove her to a nearby medical center in Malone, and shortly after midnight, while the two inmates waited near the intersection outside the prison, she was being checked into the Alice Hyde Medical Center for observation overnight. Satisfied that his wife was safe, Lyle drove home to tend to their dogs and go to bed. They had no idea that two convicted criminals were free due to his wife and planning on eliminating him at home, because that was the latest plan. When midnight arrived, Sweat and Matt climbed out, leaving this note behind. You left me no choice but to grow old and die in here. I had to do something. There were more homes around this intersection than they had recalled, and one glaring streetlight. They stood away from the glare of the streetlight, dressed in T-shirts and prison-issue green pants, Sweat carrying a guitar case to look innocent, and Matt wearing a backpack. Within minutes, a local resident, Leslie Lewis III, the young stepson of a prison employee who lived right at the corner, was arriving back home from a date. He got out of his girlfriend's car and, seeing someone moving in the shadows behind his house, shouted, Hey! What are you scumbags doing in my backyard? The man he'd seen apologized and said he was on the wrong street. He was the one carrying the guitar case. Behind him... "'Lewis could see a second man crouched down in the yard. "'He looked like he was going through a backpack,' "'Lewis later told the police. "'He also said, "'The guy I chased out of the yard ran toward the other guy, "'and then they headed toward Smith Street. "'Both of the inmates left the immediate vicinity, "'and in about ten more anxious minutes "'they decided Joyce wasn't coming, "'and they were on their own. "'They had no plan B. "'Sweat told Matt they were going to have to go on foot.' For the first time, Matt realized he had left his new boots back in his cell. By the time the dawn came, they had walked five miles down a rarely-traveled side road that paralleled Route 374, headed west out of Dannemora. At 5.17 a.m., the honor block was roused awake, and each cell was approached. Sweat and Matt's cells were empty. The prison alarm was sounded. In the woods, to the north and west of Dannemora, Sweat and Matt were already complaining of blisters. Prison life does not toughen feet. Their hasty plan was to walk north and northwest, avoiding the deep wilderness of the Adirondacks, which they weren't prepared to handle. Their whole plan had depended on Joyce's jeep. By six thirty a.m., all police units in the area had been contacted. A thorough search of every space in the prison where a man could hide had been started, and a lockdown had commenced. Joyce Mitzel was immediately identified as being a suspect by her supervisor. She knew they would be coming after her, so she decided to turn herself in. She was discharged at 11 a.m. the morning of the 6th, and she went directly to the state trooper headquarters in Malone. The next day, police showed up at her house. She soon made a partial confession, and when the press picked that up, she would soon become the most hated person in the North Country. Meanwhile, authorities were searching the farms and fields around the town of Willsboro, New York, after receiving a tip that Matt and Sweat ...may have been spotted there on June 9th. When the escape was discovered... ...prison officials called on the state police for help... ...and corrections officers immediately set up roadblocks... ...and sent out patrols covering Dannemora... ...which was considered ground zero. Major Charles Guess of State Police Troop B... ...was placed in charge... ...and it was a good choice... ...because not only were his men very familiar... ...with the Adirondack Park and its environs... ...but Guess, a former Army Ranger... ...was familiar with running all types of operations... And he was a respected officer. Authorities spent June 9th and 10th retracing their steps near Danamora after searching Willsboro, and also expanded the search to the border with Vermont, saying the two may have tried to flee to that state. Authorities in Canada, including the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and departments along the border with the U.S. and Mexico, where Matt had previously been convicted of murder, were also alerted. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, state and local police, and the New York State Forest Rangers, and all available corrections personnel were all involved in the search, which was being led by the local police and the United States Marshal Service working with prison officials. A $50,000 bounty was set for each inmate by Governor Como, and was subsequently increased to 75000 when the U.S. Marshals added 12500 for each escapee. Governor Cuomo did not say at the time that any state personnel involved in the capture would not be subject to receiving the reward. At that time, there were no reports of break-ins, robberies, or homicides, but there were two reported sightings. A stretch of nearby New York State Route 374 was closed until further notice on June 11th. School classes were canceled in Dannemora and nearby Saranac. Later that day, The number of officers present in the area near the prison was increased to more than 500, from the initial estimate of between 300 and 400. That afternoon and evening, after bloodhounds picked up a scent and authorities discovered a footprint and a protein bar wrapper, police began methodically searching, until nightfall, a wooded area near the nearby town of Katyville, New York. Areas of the more populous nearby city of Plattsburgh and parts of Lake Champlain had also been searched, and billboards asking for help were put up in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Vermont, Pennsylvania, and along the Canada-U.S. border. It is interesting to note that the lockdown at the Clinton Correctional Facility, which began the morning it was discovered that two inmates were missing, was not the first lockdown requested recently. The prison superintendent, Steve Ray Satt, directed his deputy to request permission for a lockdown from Albany just one week earlier, on May 31st. 30 or 40 inmates had gotten into a brawl in the recreation yard and guards had to fire several canisters of C.S. tear gas to quell the disturbance. Experienced prison guards will tell you that a brawl this size often signals something big about to happen. The inmates know something big is about to go down. In the case of a planned escape, there are no secrets in prison, but there are few snitches willing to let on to something that big. There is the old prison maxim which says snitches get stitches, and it's usually worse than stitches. That fight may well have been the inmates' way of signaling that the escape was about to happen. The theory here is that a large enough prison brawl would trigger a lockdown, and in that case, a close and thorough check of every cell would take place, the hopeful escapees would be caught, and the prison inmates would not have to suffer the consequences of a prison escape, and there would be consequences affecting their many freedoms inside. But Albany turned down his request for a lockdown. Albany usually made decisions based on two criteria. One, is this action fair to the inmates? And two, will it cost money? Lockdowns would surely have been viewed by Albany as unfair, and they definitely cost more because they required more resources and man hours. Meanwhile, families in Clinton County and surrounding were bracing up, making sure security lights were working on their properties, keeping guns close at hand and knowing that their children were either safe in school or playing inside. Within days, roadblocks and house checks were common, so coming and going anywhere was a slow process. Mugshots of the two criminals had been posted everywhere and were seen constantly on TV and the Internet. Somehow the term Clinton Strong evolved, which served the community in saying, we know this isn't easy, but we're all going to survive it together. And in the days to come, Residents in a number of counties undergoing searches were handing out everything from hot coffee to warm socks to the searchers at their command posts.
0: ...were discovered missing from their maximum security prison cells during a bed check around 530 this morning, prompting a manhunt and a ripple of concern for people's safety across the state. Sweat was found guilty of killing a Broome County sheriff. Matt was convicted for beating a man to death. Now authorities are concerned what they might do while on the loose. If he killed the police officer once, um, I don't think he would think twice to do it again. Law enforcement agencies across the state are on the lookout. Bus terminals and the Albany Airport are on heightened alert. Sheriff Apple says neighborhoods should be too. We want everybody to be on your toes. Keep your cars locked. Keep your doors locked. Pay attention to what's going on in your community. Police are also questioning an employee at the prison where the inmates escaped, but aren't revealing what she's told them. Jessica Layton continues our coverage live from Denamora tonight. And just we understand there's been some police activity there this evening. What's going on? Jim in the last hour police have had the woods surrounded just a couple of miles from here. Let's show you what we saw just a few minutes ago. It's raining, foggy and pitch black, but there has been a chopper flying around circling that area and right now several roads are blocked off. We also saw officers lined up circling the perimeter with their guns. Now all this action might turn out to be nothing, but we have been here all week, and I can tell you the intensity we saw just now, well, we haven't witnessed anything else like that at night since we got here. State police tonight say they are following up on at least 500 leads. One of them is the tip that these guys may have tried to take off for Vermont about 22 miles from here.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today for this recent history, The Escape from Tanamora. As we begin Part 2 of Escape from Dannemora, Richard Matt and David Sweat are on the run in the wooded area somewhere outside of Dannemora, New York, with at least 1,500 law enforcement personnel searching for them. The leads have been pouring in, but at this early stage in the search, none are panting out. Here we bring you into our story. Meanwhile, Sweat and Matt "'totally out of their element, headed west. "'Joyce Mitchell's home may not have been their target, "'but as fate would have it, "'that was the direction they were headed toward. "'Revenge and car might have been the motive there, "'but they had to stay off the road "'due to the constant presence of police cars, "'and the terrain was very difficult to walk through. "'Sweat's guitar case was scratched and soggy "'from the rainy, cold weather, "'and Matt's backpack was suffering the same fate. "'The two were footsore by day two loaded with blisters, while their bodies were being eaten alive by bugs. There was a constant cloud cover, so they couldn't get a fix on direction, and they didn't have a compass. That was one of the things Joyce was supposed to have been bringing. They were now in pretty wild country, and coming across vacant hunting cabins and tree stands. The tree stands provided them sleeping space, although it was cold and rainy. When they could, they broke into empty cabins for food, supplies, and liquor, especially liquor, Matt had suddenly acquired a thirst for any kind of liquor, and was polishing off every bottle he could find. This action, as well as others on Matt's part, convinced Sweat that the sooner he could part company with Matt, the better. On June 13th, the search included helicopters, all-terrain vehicles, and search dogs. However, bad weather conditions, including rain, hampered search efforts, especially the dogs. On June 20th, a retired corrections officer named John Stockwell, named Stumpy, loaded up his Labrador Retriever and his favorite sidearm into his pickup and told his wife Nancy he was going to check up on their hunting camp in the Adirondack Park, which they called Twisted Horn. As he left his home in Lion Mountain, which is just about an hour due west of Dannemora, Stumpy made a promise to his wife that they would enjoy their soon-to-come 28th anniversary by going to a casino. He had placed some game cameras there back in May, "'and he wanted to check them,' he said, "'although no doubt he was thinking "'what a good spot that deserted hunting camp "'would be for two escaped convicts. "'When he reached the little hamlet of Standish, "'he left the pavement to take a dirt road "'that crossed from Clinton County into Franklin County, "'and then turned onto rugged Wolf Pond Road, "'stopping at a small clearing in the woods "'to unload his ATV. "'The last mile and a half to his hunting lodge "'was full of rugged road, twists, and turns, "'and it was more rock than dirt.' was ten miles of bouncing while his dog Dolly followed. When he got close to the lodge, Dolly darted out ahead of him, her eyes on the lodge. She was now growling, and the hair on the back of her neck was bristling. Stumpy could now see the lodge, and he saw a man's silhouette for a moment in the front door. He knew the sound of his ATV had alerted whoever was there. In the mountains, there was an unspoken code that you didn't occupy anyone's vacated lodge or cabin without an invite so whoever this was, they weren't friendly or locals. He drew his handgun and shouted a challenge. Now he could see a hooded figure darting past the windows inside, as if gathering supplies. Stumpy shouted out the order, "'Show yourselves!' Then he heard the back door slam and the sound of footsteps on the camp's back deck. Then came the crashing sound of movement in the woods behind. Stumpy knew there was no cell signal up here. He didn't know if the men were armed or not, He needed to get word to the searchers that this was very likely the convicts, so he turned the ATV around and began heading back down the rocky path as fast as he could. When the thought hit him that he'd left Dolly behind, he paused a few seconds, and then there she was. She had caught up with him. By growling that warning, his Labrador may well have saved his life, and he knew it. Once back on Wolf Pond Road, he turned west, which was the path to the closest civilization. At the Bryant Siding Road he finally got a cell signal and he punched 911 in and quickly identified himself. He described his remote location and began explaining his encounter when the phone died. Soon after that the phone rang at his home residence and Nancy answered. All she could get out of the conversation was that her husband had called 911 and he had spotted what he believed were the escaped convicts. That was all. She had no idea if he was okay. If the convicts had caught up with him or if he was following them. All she could do was worry. She then called 911 and did the best she could to give them his location, which was very remote. Minutes later, there was a line of police cars racing past her house on their way to the hunting camp. Now all she could do was wait. John Stockton was waiting for the police to arrive. They allowed him the use of their phones to contact his wife and tell her he was okay. Then the team proceeded by truck until the truck could go no further. Then they went on foot to the camp. A search of the camp turned up evidence, and within 24 hours, the report from the DNA came back that yes, the escapees had been there, and now they could be tracked using dogs. Soon, owners of other camps began to report that their facilities had been broken into. The police and searchers now had a trail and a direction, and the net was closing in. The reward money brought in lots of leads, over 3,000 of them, all but a few turning out worthless. It also brought bounty hunters, including Dwayne Chapman, known as Dog the Bounty Hunter on cable TV. Of course, he got his on-camera time, saying he'd been collecting his own leads and he was running them down. A psychic from Texas said that Matt and Sweat had separated, that Joyce Mitchell knew more than she was telling, and that one of the escapees was heading for the mountains. One bounty hunter dressed in full tactical gear tried to blend in with the others in a secure command post so that he could get an update on the hunt, but was quickly found out and arrested. The searchers had no sense of humor remaining for self-serving loners. These men had been hunting day and night for weeks in bad weather through heavily forested areas, barns, deserted buildings, and deserted hunting and fishing camps, never knowing when they might get shot by a cornered killer. Their patience was exhausted." Sweat and Matt were on the run again. Sweat was wearing a pair of boots he'd found at Twisted Horn, which was Stumpy's camp. Matt's backpack was coming apart, and as he tried to run through the woods, items were tumbling off from the torn seams. Matt had wanted to kill the guy on the ATV, but Sweat had talked him out of it. They'd seen him draw his handgun. When they heard Stockton revving his ATV engine, they figured he was chasing them. They had no way of knowing he was headed in the opposite direction to call it in, they ran wildly into the thickest woods they encountered. Heavy rains and cold nights were slowing their progress and slowing them down physically. The liquor had gotten to Matt, and he was in the worst shape of the two. He wanted to sleep half the day. They found one camp, that camp known as the Champagne Camp, where they stopped for a night. Matt and Sweat also found 20-gauge shells for the empty shotgun they'd been carrying, and they had a topographical map they'd stolen from Twisted Horn. On County Route 41, a few miles from the Canadian border, they found another hunting camp, and while there sawed off the long barrel of the 20-gauge, making it easier to carry through heavy woods. Police cars were patrolling the roads. As they slogged through the brush and the woods and the swamps, they could see police cars patrolling the roads. By this time, Matt was mumbling that he was ready to die, and he wanted to take as many men with him as he could. By this time, hundreds of CERT officers and these were men of the corrections emergency response teams, were relentlessly walking the woods and fields in long lines trying to flush out the escapees. These CERT officers lacked much of the body armor that other search counterparts had, and for them, it was just another story of the local guys on strict budgets getting sent out to do the grunt work. All in long lines and wearing white rain slickers, they made easy targets for armed felons. In truth, Most of them were probably glad to get the chance to catch these convicts who posed a legitimate danger to their families back home and to the community. On Friday, June 26th, it was some off-duty prison corrections employees who got involved in the first close hunt. Bob Willett, Jr., a 32-year-old corrections officer, had been checking his family's hunting camp just outside of Malone, daily, when he was off the clock. He had been following the reports of the search, "'and knew that Sweat and Matt had to be close to where his camp, "'which he called Camp Humbug. "'On this day, he opened the door of his camp "'and quickly noticed a sweet scent of alcohol filling the room. "'He spotted an open bottle of Seagram's grape-flavored gin on the counter. "'It was half empty, and some liquid had been spilled on the counter. "'He hadn't seen that yesterday when he'd come by. "'Checking the rest of the cabin, he found nothing else out of place. "'He called his father,' who had a repair shop just down the road, to come up, and his pal Paul Marlowe, a local member of the hunting camp, who he knew was off duty today as well. Soon the three of them, Bob Marlowe Sr., Bob, and Paul Marlowe, were taking a long look around. Soon Bob Sr. left, saying he had to go back to his repair garage. Bob Jr. decided to stay at the camp while Paul Marlowe drove out to Route 30 to meet the police, who Bob Jr. had called. Marlow then called state police investigator Jason Pelkey, his friend, who also lived close. By the way, you don't want to be an escaped felon on the run in upstate New York. It's loaded with prisons, corrections officers, expert hunters, and state police. They all know each other, and nearly everyone living in that area carries weapons. It's amazing that Matt and Sweat survived for three weeks up there. Pelkey called in the break-in. Then he asked Paul Marlowe to wait there at the roadside on Route 30 so he could direct the responders to the hunting cabin, which didn't have an address in the Franklin County database. Marlowe was sitting in the driver's seat in his truck on the shoulder of Route 30 when he heard a gunshot. He called Bob Jr. at the camp to ask if he had heard it. He answered yes. Marlowe then called 911 to report the gunshot and asked to be connected to Officer Pelkey, but the connection failed. He texted gunshot into his phone to Pelkey. It was 11 p.m. Pelkey soon texted him back, asking him to find a local mailbox so they could get a fix. Marlowe drove to the nearest house and texted the address to Pelkey. He didn't know it at the time, but in driving to that house, he had passed Robert Matt in the woods. After he texted the address, he saw a state police troop car pulling off the highway. Two plainclothes investigators stepped out, both wearing bulletproof vests over their dress shirts and ties, and both carrying semi-automatic M4 tactical rifles. Paul told them about the camp burglary and the gunshot he'd heard. While they were talking, another gunshot boomed out through the woods. At the same time, they saw a caravan of three trucks heading toward them, two of the trucks pulling campers. The first driver pulled off. As it turned out, the driver had heard the shot and thought he'd blown a tire on his Gulfstream camper. But he checked the tires, and they were okay and the campers soon continued down the road. Some time later, when they reached their destination, they found a slug hole in the side of one of the campers. Malone and the two state policemen heard a third shot, then a fourth, and then a fifth. Within twenty minutes, the area was flooded with law enforcement. Then two A-star helicopters landed, carrying heavily armed federal officers. It was five men wearing camo fatigues and covered with high-tech combat gear, who leaped out and headed straight into the woods. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The helicopter reinforcements were a Federal Border Patrol Tactical Unit known as BORTAC, an acronym for Border Tactical Team. There were two BORTAC teams, one which worked out of Swanton, Vermont, patrolling along the Vermont-Canada border, and another which usually worked the Mexican border. Both teams were commanded by Team Leader Christopher Voss, at that same time, a state trooper named Jason Lewis was searching along the border of Route 30 near a swampy area when he heard movement, branches rustling, and then a cough. He radio-signaled that someone was in there, and Voss, the leader of the National Bortech team, heard it and soon moved his men into that swampy area. Surrounding officers now had guns drawn. At that moment, a copter flew overhead and Major Guess, who was commanding officer for the whole search operation, was present and ordered the copter to move away, which it did. He also ordered the state police to return to the road and hold the lines, letting the Bortec teams and the FBI hostage rescue team work the swamp. Commander Voss and his Bortec team came to a ridge. Climbing that, they merged into a V formation with Agent Cavassos on point. Near the top, Cavassos dropped to his knees and assumed an offensive position. Leveling his rifle, he whispered, just loud enough for the men on both sides for him to hear, I got one. Voss was to his immediate right. What do you have? he said. Cavassos called out loud. "'Renlys!' There was no answer. Then let me see your hands. Still no response. He repeated the same twice. All five men were now leveling their rifles, searching for the potential threat. Voss then moved quietly ahead to flank Cavassos for a movement forward. Voss would later say, "'As I rounded to my left, I saw a log on the ground in front of Eric. There was a man lying prone against it, a man who at that time Cavassos could no longer see from his angle. But Voss's sharp eyes, made out a head, eyes, nose, and mouth, visible through a pile of leaves and brush. Voss took aim with his M4, which was set on single fire. The gun's high-tech LED and laser sights fixed on the target's face.' Voss was an army ranger with hostage rescue training. He'd been involved in the rescue of Iraq POW Jessica Lynch. He was now facing a high-value target, and the probable action was to somehow take him alive. But in that same split second that he saw the head and face, he also saw the barrel of a gun aimed squarely at him from 15 yards away. Cavazos was only 10 yards away. Voss had no other option than to fire three times. The shots coming so fast, they sounded like one. The words, shots fired, echoed through all the police radios in the few seconds following. Voss had hit his target. Matt's head was a gory mess, having been hit twice. A third bullet had hit his shoulder. Voss ordered Cavazos and the others to move up. Then Voss pulled the sawed-off 20-gauge from the dead man's hands. Cavazos rolled the body aside to check for other weapons, but there were none. To avoid contaminating the area, which was now considered a crime scene in terms of how it was to be treated, One of the Bortec members used a stick to pull up the dead man's jacket and shirt. He was covered with prison tats. The Bortec team knew that Matt had a Mexico Forever tattoo on his back. Once that was confirmed, they knew they had Richard Matt. One down, one to go. Maybe a coincidence, maybe not, but they were only twelve miles from Joyce Mitchell's front door. And the two escapees had a map. It was never proven— "'but Matt's destination was likely their house "'so he could get revenge for Michael abandoning them in Danamora, "'and get a vehicle. "'The hunt for the cop-killer's sweat continued with intensity now, "'as tracking dogs, the Swanton Bortak, the National Bortak, "'and the FBI HRT team spent dangerous hours "'searching the rugged and wet terrain "'within 20 miles of where Matt had been killed. "'That was a lot of terrain.' Meanwhile, hundreds of federal, state, county, and local law officers joined in forming a perimeter through which no one was going to escape. Back in Malone, at the police HQ, which, as you might remember, was the station across the street from where Joyce Mitchell and her husband had dined on their last trip home together, the state police superintendent, Joseph D'Amico, took the time to congratulate all the citizens and state employees who had thus far provided support and understanding for the whole undertaking. The night after Richard Matt was shot, spotlights mounted on generator-driven power towers just north of Malone Village were lit up, having been activated by movement. Sweat had holed up in a deer stand in the middle of a swamp that Friday night. The next morning Sweat was moving north, his objective to reach the Canadian border, but first he had to wade through soggy ditches and stretches of marsh in the cold morning air. Then he had to wade across the Salmon River. He had turned east, not north, and didn't know it, as the sky was thick with clouds, and the sun wasn't visible. He was now in Burke, New York, six miles from the Canadian border. He was now in farm country, and travel was getting easier. By Sunday morning, the border was three miles away, although he didn't know it. He knew the pursuit was on, and was now moving during the daytime. He could hear dogs barking, and he knew he was being tracked. He still had the pepper that Joyce Mitchell had provided, so he removed his raincoat and doused his shoes and legs with pepper, hoping that would work. His boots and legs were soaked, and the ground was wet, and there was very little chance the use of pepper had helped him at all. June 28th was the third Sunday of the search. David Sweat needed to cross a road, but before he did, he timed the passing of patrol cars until he was sure he could cross the road and make it through a field without being seen until he reached the cover of the trees. New York State Police Sergeant Jay Cook, a 47-year-old veteran who had served as a gunnery range instructor, was in charge of a roving detail of state police assigned to that area near the town of Burke. Sweat finally made his move across the road and was walking through a field of alfalfa as Sergeant Cook rounded the corner in his car. Cook saw a figure walking north through the field. He couldn't tell at first if it was a man or a woman. The person was dressed in camouflage walking along the edge of a hedgerow on Coveytown Road's left side. He was quickly approaching a wall of thick underbrush under mature trees, which would have provided him cover. Cook broke to a stop and yelled, "'Stop!' The person turned and waved his cap. "'No, no, I'm good,' he said. But Cook got a look at his face, and he realized it was sweat. He jumped out of the car, leaving the door open and the motor running." It took him just a moment to cross a bramble filled ditch and enter the field. Then shouting as he ran, he yelled again. Stop, or I'll shoot. Sweat was very close to the tree line, and he began to run. Cook drew his Glock forty five and assumed a shooting stance. He fired once, hitting Sweat, who stumbled, but got up and ran again. Cook fired again, and this time Sweat fell to the ground. At the range of seventy five yards, three-quarters the length of a football field. Cook had fired twice and hit his target solidly twice. Cook then cautiously encircled his downed man, positioning himself between sweat and the tree line. Sweat had been lung shot, and blood was coming from his mouth. The second bullet had hit his shoulder. The extra knockdown power of a forty five had come in handy at that range. Cook called it in. Shots fired. Suspect shot. Then he asked for an ambulance. Troopers soon arrived, and Sweat was searched, a search which turned up an empty knife sheath, $36 in currency, and a Ziploc bag with pepper in it. In the coming days, Sweat survived his wounds, and then gave up his story, making himself look like the genius and mastermind of the escape, and explaining how he and Matt had turned Joyce Mitchell and Palmer, both of whom were going to be serving jail time. The hunt for the killers was the largest search of its type ever made in New York. Within hours of Sweat's capture, Governor Como returned to Malone for another press conference, this time wearing a beaming smile as he announced the capture of Mr. Sweat. A state investigation was later held which concluded that the escape could never have happened without executive management's failure to correct serious security problems. Every failure was reported, with never a reference to the fact that many of those failures were due to budget cuts as well as decisions from Albany such as the one not to allow a lockdown the week before the escape, which would certainly have resulted in the discovery of the escape holes in the convict cells. Albany remained blameless, which was the unannounced purpose of the report in the first place. The goal was to identify the most likely prison officials on whose shoulders the failures rested, and then fire them. Then spend time interrogating, firing, or retraining prison workers. For the inmates, the lockdown had only lasted two weeks, ending a week before Sweat was caught. For the corrections officers, the layoffs and training and interrogations continued for months. This, according to the man who knew the correction story very well, Charles A. Gardner, the author of Dannemora, who was deeply involved in the search and in the aftermath. He wrote, When the report came out, the governor talked tough about what needed to be done, but kept his focus squarely at the individual prison level. I said there were no holds barred, he told the press Republican. By his own words, he admitted that some holds might have been barred. In Albany. the head of the investigation, Lay Scott was to take a microscope and go find out how the place works, to see how the culture works and what needs to be changed. In case you're wondering, Paul Marlow, who helped the police zero in on Matt after the break-in at Camp Humbug, was able to collect a $25,000 federal reward. But because he was a state employee, he couldn't qualify for the $50,000 reward offered by Como. "'Neither was retired employee Stumpy Stockwell "'or Trooper Jay Cook. "'No one ever collected Governor Como's reward. "'Joyce Mitchell pled guilty to both charges against her "'in helping the escape. "'You did terrible things,' the judge told her. "'The state incurred millions of dollars in expense. "'A large population of the, the law enforcement officers "'hunting for those convicts you helped escape "'never knew if their next step would be their last. "'Her attorney bargained for a plea,' which landed Joyce two to seven years, and she was fined $79,000 to repair the damage the inmates did to the prison. And she did receive an early release for good behavior. Corrections officer Gene Palmer resigned from his job and was fined $5,000. David Sweat was sent to Five Points Correction Facility in the Finger Lakes region, where he spent 23 hours a day in the SHU, the Special Housing Unit, from which he wasn't going to be escaping. He was also ordered to pay $79,000 to the state. While there, he made a proposal to prison officials to be paid for offering his services on making that prison escape-proof. They basically told him to pound sand and transferred him to Attica. At last report, Governor Cuomo's Mr. Sweat was in the S.A.U. there, dangerous only to himself. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast. Many more true stories to come. Also, please be aware that due to popular demand, our short story podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, is offering two episodes weekly now, one on Wednesday night and one on Sunday night, both airing at 5 p.m. Eastern. For those of you who may be new to podcasts, just go to the app on your phone. If it's Apple, download the Apple Podcast app. It's free. And then you can search for any of our podcasts, starting with 1,001. They all start with 1,001. For everybody else, you can search for Google Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify's the biggest. Those are called Android hosts. Spotify's the biggest Android site in terms of podcast listens. All devices that are not Apple, at least in my knowledge, are called Android devices. So if your cell phone isn't Apple, it's an Android device. Once you download a podcast, it makes listening to and finding episodes easy. Apple is neat because once you subscribe to a podcast, they'll send you a notice that the next episode is now available. Most of our reviews come from Apple. Number one, because it offers reviews, and number two, because it's most listened to by far. It still handles about 50% of all the podcast listens. All the others just have slices of that pie. As you know, we really appreciate reviews. And we appreciate your sharing our show and helping new listeners subscribe. Because I cover a lot of history, older folks really enjoy both literature and history as heard on our 1001 shows. So if you have older relatives, help them connect. They'll thank you for it, and listening together can bring upon some really good conversations and facts about their lives you didn't know. I know this because some listeners have told me exactly that. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Stay safe out there, and we'll be back before you know it.